On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I do a mailbag. We actually get through, I think, every question that was submitted on Twitter, which means that we get much fewer questions than we used to, which maybe means we're less popular than we used to, which maybe means we have fewer than seven listeners. Maybe, I don't know. We're going to have to do a count. Uh, but with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a town with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage is sports. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. A very special episode of the Bet the Process podcast where rufus and i are headed to sloan this weekend um the sloan analytics conference which is formative to i think both of our careers and some level and formative to this podcast because we actually met each other at sloan right isn't that correct i believe so i don't i don't remember the story was there a story um not a good i don't remember exactly how we met i'm glad it was so memorable for you I feel I like we met at some, at some, I don't even know. Yeah, I was, I'm not even sure. I, I feel like it was at some happy hour or something. Um, yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> That's what Sloan is. It's a lot of networking, a lot of meeting people in the industry. Yeah, I mean, it used to be more of that, right? I think, I think the general consensus is that Sloan, from a standpoint of a analytics sports better, has um is, is not the same as it used to be like there used to be a lot of the really sharp sports betters that would come and, and sloan has just evolved generally as a conference where while analytics has sort of evolved right i mean it used to be much more it's kind of interesting right because <clears throat> the gambling panel at sloan used to be like kind of the small cottage thing and now they have two very big sort of marquee uh panels that i'm <clears throat> not a part of and i mean it's understandable i guess that they want to have like these more seasoned professional um moderators coming in and doing this and and obviously my style did you say a more seasoned professional moderator i I think the area you excel in the most is moderating you ask good questions you follow up well you react to what people are saying well i will be moderating a panel rufus i appreciate that i'll be moderating a panel with nate silver and uh, Maria Ho and Jennifer Shahady on uh, poker and really around the analytics around poker. And I think one of the things that we're going to get into that is going to be super interesting is a lot around game theory because of this whole game theory optimal strategy in poker. And, and um, you know, ideally we'll have Maria or Jennifer or Nate on at some point to talk a little bit about the panel because it is pretty fascinating if any of you guys haven't looked at like the solvers and this general game theory optimal strategy which kind of says like oh poker solved um it's worth looking at because ultimately i think there are a lot of um real parallels to what's happening in sports where sports is like much earlier and even you know that conversation that we had with kevin cole around siriani being so optimal in his decision making does that actually end up making him predictable because of how optimal he is and that's kind of like the concept of game theory at some level right which is that how do you react to, um, you know, how do you, how do you sort of, and one of the things that I was talking, I had a call with Jennifer 
who's this sort of really accomplished poker and chess player. And she was talking about how in chess, sometimes they will intentionally do the third or fourth most optimal move because everyone is thinking that you're going to do the most optimal move and you can't really beat someone that way. You're going to almost always go to a draw. So if you want to win, sometimes you have to do something a little bit off the board, which may uh, push someone into a decision that's even more suboptimal and then you kind of trap them. And so- Because they're not prepared for it? They haven't studied that? Yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I I didn't ask the specifics of how you trap them, I guess. I guess that would be something I'll ask- maybe on the on the panel um which is on friday i believe at 1 30 so um yeah but i'm excited to do it it's it's not a domain that i consider myself to be an expert in by any means poker um so it'll be interesting for me as someone from outside of the domain moderating that panel because you know nate and jennifer and maria are obviously experts in the field um did you have a tilted moment of the week rufus you know not that i can think of I don't know why this question always catches me by surprise because we do it every week. Did you have Same. a tilted moment? Um, well, I ski. Did we talk about me skiing for the first time? Yeah. The jacket. Uh, James losing a jacket, or is that what you're talking about? Yeah, James lost a really nice jacket, which was a bummer. James is my uh, five-year-old son. I think this um, was discussed yeah. last week because I think the skiing wasn't last week, right? It was the week before. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I guess that wasn't really tilted. This last weekend. I mean, I, I think that the 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 most tilted thing is that I've been um, uh, tailing some really good college basketball better, and um, the places I've been using to get outs um, through a, a betting partnership, uh, they went from having five-cent lines across all their college basketball or 10-cent lines across... Cent. 10, okay. 10 cent line, sorry. Minus one of five, minus one of five. Minus one of five, minus one of five to um, within the course of a week, moving them to minus 115, minus 115. <laughs> so yeah. they didn't like the action that was being furnished to them. Um, but uh, that, I guess that's somewhat tilted, but that's like the classic thing because people were asking, we're doing a mailbag today and people were asking a lot of questions about, you know, this whole idea of, Actually, you know what? It was my tilted moment when when I was when you talked about me doing my victory lap on John Rom and someone going, "Oh yeah, he picked John Rom in Georgia." Wow, really great picks. But John Rom was still like plus eight hundred, you know. And Georgia, when I bet them a couple of years ago that I did a victory lap on, they were seven to one going into the season. They hadn't beaten Alabama in any kind of meaningful game in quite some time. So it's not like. Yes, in in retrospect, these were all easy picks. But any golfer to win when they if you pick them to win and they win, you know, short of Tiger Woods and his heyday, is is you know a reasonable prognostication. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, relative to having to pick a different golfer for sure. No, not necessarily, but overall, sure. yes. Sure. This is it's like any any time you hit bomb. a plus eight hundred, it's a great day. Yes, absolutely. It's an accomplishment. Um, what about you? So did, did I bought a little time for you? Did you have a t- tilted moment? No, we had a, we had, we've continued on this really good run we've been on. It's now five straight weeks of like, you know, it's by far the best five week stretch we've ever had. I think two of the weeks were maybe would have beaten any of other weeks we've had or close to it. And I, mean, I think we made more in five weeks than we made all, all last year betting in sports. So it's been, you know, I'm, it's been really, it's been really good. 
and it hasn't been hitting like golf outrights or anything like that. It's just been just matchups and basketball and you've just been grinding and you've been grinding on the positive side. Right. And, and everything, it's kind of like the classic, you know, you're just on a good run. You're not like, it's not, it's not like anything is like completely out of the realm of possibility, but like, you're just winning on everything right now. It's it's right. Right. I think we've been returning over the last five weeks, like 10% on college basketball, which is fantastic. But that's not, but yeah, it is for sure. Yeah. But it's not, it's not like, oh, we've had this great run where we've returned 30%. It's like, we're getting a lot down where, and we are running above expectation. We're probably running, I mean, we're probably running fairly close to our theoretical, but we're, you never expect to hit your theoretical. When, when you, if, if you were asked to talk about your college basketball model, which I know you don't really want to talk that much about. Well, and that's it. And saying it's mine is not proper attribution either. Right. It's someone you met on Twitter who you've been working with and yada, yada, yada. Didn't meet on Twitter actually, but. Okay. Well, you met him on J date and you grinder grinder and um, grinder and, uh, but like how, I mean, how would you, is there anything that you could say to someone that you think wouldn't give away your secret sauce that might give them imagination into how they might start building a model of this type. Honestly, this what's been built is taken thousands and thousands of hours and it involves a lot of data cleaning and, and basically doing the grunt work that other people aren't willing to do and having a good framework and structure for it. And so I think doing that then enables you to take advantage of, of looking at things in some unique and interesting ways. Interesting. But I, that's, there really can I, is. Can I mention a, that a it's big a simula- return. Can I mention it's a simulation? Yeah, there really so, is a big return well, to I just sort did, of. So you did. There is a big return to grinding on things that other people aren't willing to do, and it's especially with the fact that the data out there isn't perfect, and being able to kind of identify mistakes in the data and be able to, I mean, be able to, I guess, process it better and wrangle it better than other people. Has that's, I mean, what ninety plus percent of my time is not spent actually building models or, or doing actual data analysis. It's spent processing and organizing data. Right. So this is that whole like data scientists in Silicon Valley half their time spent cleaning data, the other half complaining about data. Yeah, um, basically. So if you go back to this idea of it being a simulator, I know that you've had. Um, you've been, I guess more Mark, who's someone I work with on stuff, but I think you have been someone that isn't always into simulation, right? Like you, you kind of believe like that, that models can be just as good as simulation or is that not true? No, I think that simulations can be very useful when you have things that are more complex. So a good example is, and this is not something I'm doing right now, but it's something in the future potentially I will do, which for, for golf, I mean, you could say this particular course, like this week, for example, Bay Hill, um, players play out of bunkers a lot there. I think the average is something like 2.4, or 2.6 uh, bunker shots per player per round at Bay Hill. And so you could say bunker bunker play matters more, but it shouldn't matter more necessarily uniformly. It might depend on, and, and it shouldn't matter uniformly just for projecting a 
a guy's mean or median. It matters more if you're, it's going to matter more for guys that are less accurate on approaches, right? But also in terms of upside, so guys, like if you want to think about a guy's chances of winning a tournament, unless they're named like John Rahm, they're going to have to be running pretty hot on their approach play and other areas of their game to have a chance to win. And so they're going to be missing fewer greens probably. And so they're going to have fewer bunker shots. And so in a way I could say that you can make an argument that a simulation would show probably that the impact of bunker play on actually hitting your upside, like a guy winning a tournament is going to be less than it is just on his average projection. And so I think a simulation can capture things in that sort of area. And I think it's sort of the same for basketball. I mean, it can capture how a team plays in certain circumstances, you know, maybe being up big late in the second half or they how what their, what their pace is going to be, what their substitution patterns are going to be, things like that, where, um, where you wouldn't be able, it, it would be very difficult to, do it with inference. So it's still, I think all these simulations are built on having good projections and it's turning these good projections into sort of outcome that actually mirrors the way the sport is played in reality. And it, that's what a simulation is doing is taking inputs and turning it into a realistic um, model of how a game or a golf hole or whatever goes. That's actually a good segue into the some of the questions that we got on Twitter, right? Specifically the one that you called out to me, which is, do you think there will be some early season inefficiencies? And this is from Bet the Turner at Bet the Turner JT. Do you think there will be some early season inefficiencies in the betting market with the new MLB rules? I mean, clearly I I I, I do. And I would guess you do as well, Jeff. Do you know the do you do you know the new Yeah, I mean rules? I know I mean I know the pitch clock, I know the shift rule. Um there's the the batters can't step out of the box um or, or they have to be ready within 8 seconds. Yeah, there's a bun- bunch of speed of play stuff, right? Yeah. So there's pitch there's a pitch clock, there's a batter clock. Um and then and then there's the shift, right? Those are the th- are those the three major things? I believe so. Oh, and there's the larger bases. Oh, the larger bases, right? The larger bases. So people are saying like stealing will be, it'll be easier to steal. Yeah. In a way, the larger base means that the distance to it's slightly smaller, right? right. I think what was the point of the, the larger base is the same. The larger, well, just so people don't get hurt. Yeah. And also if you think about um, when you, you think about how often now guys get out on technicalities, basically when they're stealing second, they, they, the guy holds the tag on and they're, they do an instant replay and review and found that the guy was not touching the base for a millisecond or something like that. And so a larger base is going to be easier to hold on to and keep in contact with. And I think that's, I think they want to increase stolen bases. I think what baseball is doing is great here. Actually. I think they want more balls in play, more action. And I think these rules are intended to do that because it's become money ball with just home runs, walks and strikeouts. And of course, home runs are exciting for fans, but walks and strikeouts are not that exciting. I enjoy baseball more when there's more, especially if you're at the game, when balls are in play more, there's bunts, there's hit and runs, there's stolen bases. It's it's more exciting. And so I think that's, I think they're doing a good job in that regard, but I do think it's going to be interesting to try to guess the impacts of these things on totals, especially. And 
and on sides. I mean, certain teams are going to be better positioned to, to take advantage of these things. I think it's going to help. I mean, it'll help get, it'll help teams. Um, it'll help sort of faster teams. It'll help with base stealing. So that's going to be a differentiator. It's going to make sort of the bigger power hitters less, um, that, that skill set a little less important. Um, be having a cat, if there's more of a premium on base dealing, there's going to be more of a premium on throwing out base dealers and pitchers that can, that have a quick, uh, that are quick to home plate, but then, but isn't, the shift, I mean, how, how much EV do you think you gain can really gain from stolen bases? Right. I mean, like, unless you're going to be stealing is, it, like, like we what, can quantify what do you think? these things. We can call I don't know if you have uh, the, the book by Tom Tango, Mitchell Lichmond, Andrew Dolphin. Yeah. Uh, that talks about and gives a framework for quantifying the value of these events. And so you can, and, and we also have that framework extended further to be able to quantify in terms of runs, the value of a strike or value of a, a ball. And so you can say, that's how you can say a particular umpire might be worth, you know, 0.15 runs above an average because there's going to be these five there'll be this many additional strikes or balls called per game on expectation. And so I think you can kind of use that same framework here to quantify these things. And so what's the, if you have an additional, you know, 0.5 stolen bases and, uh, and, you know, no change in caught stealing, then that's worth however many runs. I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. It'd be interesting to have one of those guys on to talk a little bit about where they anticipate the, you know, what they anticipate the inefficiencies to be or the changes to be. I mean, I think we're, they're trying to return baseball more to the, how it was in the sort of seventies and eighties with more excitement, more balls in play, more, more stolen bases. And I, I think spring training is going to give us an interesting lens to look into it. Yeah. I mean, I compare, if you compare stats from spring training this year to last year and things like that, um, and teams aren't, it's spring trading. It's not the regular season. I don't know. I think they're probably going to be trying to steal more teams are going to be kind of experimenting to see what works and what doesn't with the, these rules also. But, um, but if you look at stuff like batting average and balls in play on, for example, ground balls, what does that look like versus what it looked like last year with the shift? And I think you, and I think kind of going back to before teams started shifting as much, um, batting average and balls in play was typically was higher. And so will, what will it start? Will it return to that level? I think you have a framework there just based on past data and then based on spring training. What is less known to me is the impact of the pitch clock and the batters, the batter clock thing. And the way I would look at that would be looking first off at pitch velocity. That's been on this like like, ascending trajectory for a while as teams have realized that throwing guys that throw harder, um, you know, that's better. And so, and guys in more of the specialization guys going pitching shorter stints. And so they can go at max effort more. And I wonder if we see, given the fact that they have less time between pitches, if they're going to be throwing less hard because they're not going to be able to quote recover as much between pitches. Well, I mean, the the reality is that the more pitches you throw in an inning, right, the the worse you do. Isn't that true? Like, there's a pretty. Well, pretty li- it means also you're not getting guys out, though. That's that's, that's why. True. That's true. 
Um, my point is though, so no, you I, can I look think at it's the a valid point. I had in play stuff, but and then you can try to look at some of the the quote stuff. I mean, back when we were betting baseball, we actually I replicated a paper that I saw at Sloan um, about Arsenal and zone ratings, which was basically grading a pitch in terms of the stuff and the location of the pitch. It was a really cool framework, and I I totally stole it, um, built it, basically replicated it, um, and. You, you could use something like that to sort of say, okay, are pitchers, is the value of their pitches and their stuff and location worse now? The same guys from year to year. So what's what's interesting in with from this standpoint is let's say that you were could only bet baseball. And I know you probably won't really do much with it because of basically how much other stuff you have on your plate. But let's just assume that you were only able to bet baseball how would you approach this season from a standpoint of, you know, the initial data when you thought like there was some, you know, stability in the data that would lead you to some hypotheses around things, you know, like one hypothesis is that bad batting average and balls in play will be higher. Another might be that pitchers velocity will go down because they don't, you know, have an ability to rest between pitches and maybe even like you could do some analysis of like a Pedro Baez or something like that, who tends to take a lot of time between pitches. I don't, I don't know if you saw that clip of him throwing one pitch while one of these pitchers this year threw an entire inning. No, I didn't. Side by side. And it Literally. was like, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Um, like, so let's say you have these hypotheses and then you look at the data. How, what would your approach be to, you know, really what would your approach be to betting the season? Would you kind of like watch the first month and be pretty cautious or how would you do it? Well, I would use spring training kind of to be a testing ground. Okay. So to you look, would test to like compare. minor, you would test like minor interactions that you think would allow to understand if there's any signal. Yeah. I would try to look at the difference between spring training last year and spring training this year for, for stuff like batting average of balls and play on ground balls, things like that. Things, just to for the shift and then also looking at strikeout rates walk rates that kind of thing and seeing it um if how much they're up and then kind of use that as sort of a prior for these differences in essence like give a guy a a bump um in his walk rates for the pitcher and and sort of penalize him a little bit in his strikeout rates if that if that ends up being what we see in spring training just based on like if overall those numbers have been up 2% or down 2% or something like that. I would say, okay, let's just adjust everybody uniformly this much. And then I would try to, I would adjust, I would, that sort of penalty I'm giving would, I would change that dynamically as a function of what I was seeing during the regular season. I like that. I think, um, I mean, cause I think people, you can, you could, the most simple thing is, and what most people are going to do is just look at the run scored and how many more runs are being scored. Um, but I do think to your point, Jeff, it may hurt some pitchers more than others. And I think if you, if somebody is just applying sort of this uniform, let's add a half a run a game, or let's say scoring is going to go up 5%, you can miss some of the nuance and the, the times, the situations where it's going to be more impactful than others. Well, I mean, you, you said one of the things you kind of kicked this all off on when we were talking about college basketball is projections, right? And baseball, more than anything, is a game of projections, meaning individual player projections that feed into 
you know, baseball sort of the ultimate bottoms up model where interactions can be measured and individual skills can be measured. Um, you don't and have so to like, work in baseball really. Right. And so like the idea that you would just like do a universal adjustment across a set of players for a projection seems like a really gross way to do it. Whereas like you could maybe look and see, cause like batting average and balls in play will impact players differently. You know, like the, sh- you know, you can just say like the shifting will impact players very differently. And so you'd have to like come up with ways to like almost like group players or segment players and figure out like how you adjust certain types of players based on and, and others. The team defense stuff is interesting too, because I think it's going it, to, it's going to make middle, it's going to make shortstop and second baseman, their defense more a premium because you can't position guys to essentially take it to, to, you can't, you have to have athletic guys that can cover more ground there now um, because you can't, you can't use the shift to kind of cover up for some of those shortcomings. And, and I think it's also clearly like, it's going to, it's going to benefit lefty pull hitters. Right. Think about like the Chris Dave, because these are the guys that were getting destroyed by the shift. They were hitting balls hard into the shift all the time. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of these shifts where, where there's only one person to the left of second base. Yeah. And, and like the, the shallow reason, right fielder, the regular right them, fielder. The reason that it hurts them more is the proximity to first base, right? Because ultimately that guy from the outfield can throw them out. Yeah. Whereas like you wouldn't be able to do at the righty pole hitter because it's just too far. Exactly. Um, okay. Let's move I, on. From- I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's going to actually help my team of choice, the Baltimore Orioles. The team I root for. Well, I mean, it's a smart a young organization, team. so they're they're and they're gonna they're gonna figure things out because they're smart. Yeah, um, I mean, they put up that big wall in left field last before last season, which actually takes advantage of the skill set of their players. And yeah, our next I, question. I know I've heard rumors that they're gonna think about expanding the foul territory too. So I think I think it's smart. Our next question comes from JD thirty seven underscore, and it says two questions. Will you fellows both be at Bet Bash in August? Will you be there, Rufus? I'll be there. Being in Vegas in the summer is a lot to ask, but I will be there. August especially is just a Vegas is that's the worst month to be in Vegas. I feel like it's so hot, and um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, like I have a tremendous amount of respect for what Spanky's built with Bet Bash. I think you know it's it's really cool to see a community of people coming together for that. And he kind of built it from scratch. So, you know, I'm happy to support him however I, I can, but I, similarly to you, August is a tough month to be in Vegas. And it's, uh, it's a month where often there's a lot of family vacations going on. Um, do you think it's better to be a Jack of all trades type of better different types of arrows in the quiver as captain Jack says, or to specialize in one or two types of markets and focus on attacking those. And do you want to go first on this one? I mean, I okay. I'll go. I mean, I think I think they're just different think, skill sets. I think part of the challenge with being a professional sports better is being able to get money down. And I think if you are only a specialist in certain sports, getting money down can end up, you know, being difficult. Whereas 
if you can do a bunch of different sports, there's a bunch of different opportunities to get money down, if that makes any sense. So that would be my answer. But I've also started specializing more and more over the years. I mean, at the beginning, I was what I was betting baseball, college football, NFL, and golf. And it was a lot. And at that time, like 10 years ago, the market was less efficient than it is now. And the barrier, essentially that threshold I needed to achieve to, to, to be good at those, each of those sports was lower than it is now. And so I could, I've kind of seen the writing on the wall coming and the fact that I only have so much, I only have so much time and bandwidth I can devote to these things. And, and there's more and more smart people using data and smart ways. Um, there's freaking construction going on in the wall behind on the other side as well. But so, yeah, so for me, for me, I think that specializing has been good because uh, if I'm really good, if I'm really good to the best at something, then I'm going to still be, be able to, even as that market gets more efficient, I'll be able to still have an edge. Um, if I try to do too many things, well, I'm going to end up doing nothing well, but this is also speaking of someone who's originating. Um, and so I think if you're talking about sort of originating versus, I, I don't want to say like, you know, top-down modeling um, or finding like edges and derivatives and things like that, you know, I think that's a different question entirely. And something I think originating gives you, makes you less fragile to changes because markets are going to continue to get efficient and oh, finding edges in mispriced derivatives. Um, I mean, hell, there's there's a lot fewer edges there than there once were. And I know we get crap at unabated because we're kind of accelerating that, um, some would say, because we're sort of showing some of these. But what it was like 10, 15 years ago was you know, insanely, it was so much more valuable and it's going to keep getting less valuable. So if you're doing something unique, I, I think in general, the more unique the thing you're doing is, or your approach is, the better positioned you are in the, for the future. That was a long-winded yeah. answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think listening to your answer, it seems almost impossible to be a jack of all trades and an, and an originator also because how efficient the markets have become and because how hard it is. Like when I think about your college basketball model and the amount of time that it went into that, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's insane. Um, okay, David... Makula and my in the golf, the amount of time that's gone into golf over the years. Yeah. At D Makula asked, what's the best country to live as a pro or semi-pro better taking into consideration available outs, license books, exchanges, access to offshore PPH limits, player protection laws, cost of living, quality of life taxes. It's a lot of things. I mean, let's start with the last. It's better to not be a U.S. citizen. Because if you, it, that, that's less about where you live because if you're a U.S. citizen, no matter where you live, you still have to pay U.S. income taxes, mm -hmm. and you're taxed on gambling winnings in the United States, and you're not if in most other countries. I don't even I don't know any other countries where they tax gambling winnings. So really, yeah, huh. it's it is kind of unfair to, to more more to recreational betters because most of them aren't actually tracking all this stuff and deducting their losses, and so if they win some jackpot, they end up, I mean, they're essentially double taxed because they're playing an unfair game. And then if they do do well. They're, they're having to pay the tax man. I think now 
right now probably is a sports better either being in one of these states with all these with a bunch of legal books like a new jersey like a colorado um is beneficial for sure or having people that are there that you're using for betting so i mean i would say someplace like denver probably is a good you have all those resources you have all those outs you have the mountains um i think there's a reason a lot of people are in denver but for me i mean you can i don't know i think it you can really be anywhere at this point it's just about where you have partners and relationships with people now that oh, and this is from Eric Crawford E. Craw, who is a, a very nice contributor to the show, did um he did our t-shirts bet the process t-shirts, yeah, and has created the bet the process bingo card, which Rufus complains has no what what's what, you need you need that free space in the middle. The free space. Well, this and is doesn't, his is a small have any reference card. to four by four instead of five by five. Yeah, we need the Jeff name drop Jeff of name somebody, drop. yeah. Somebody pseudo-famous, someone he knows that's famous. Now yeah. that at live golf players have had a season's worth of play without standard PGA tour data. How will that affect your modeling and betting strategy for the majors with mixed fields? Ooh, that's a good question. You're right. We don't have, since I won't have as much in the way of stats in terms of um, it's, I think, I think this is an advantage for me in a way, because it's going to be less easy for other people to deal with it. And I already have a way of essentially imputing statistics from what data I do have, even if we don't have the strokes gain stuff. So I think it's so, yeah. Okay. Um, what's your, what's your best advice for the novice about starting to build models and who has limited legal books on which to bet? This is too tall, Charlie, Mr. Charlie Pierce. What's your best advice for the novice about to start building models? And who has oh god okay god, I get it now he has legal he has limited legal books to which to bet and he wants to start building models. So I'd say build iterate like collect data to sort of test your stuff on and try stuff out and see if it works and and not actually betting it but but kind of paper betting or um or, or back testing and looking out of sample. So I th- I don't know what skills this person has or doesn't have. So maybe nunchuck skills. Maybe I mean if he does that, maybe he uh, maybe he should Computer look at a different career skills. entirely. Yeah. Does the three way soccer? This is from Scott, who is tunes uh, at tunes whatever. Does the three way soccer market make it a worse betting product? Who is betting on a draw? Is it all sharps? So I guess the simple question is like. What's the overround for for the three way versus the two way? Yeah, I think two way is better typically. Two way is always better just because there's there's less overround. Yeah, I mean, think about like for example, golf matchups where you have a draw between two guys for a round is a is an option. That's basically priced the same all the time, and it's just a way for them to just take out increased hold. So there there. I know that we bet on some draws for the world cup, but it was essentially a way of betting on the underdog because there was, we only had showed value on the dot on the draw when we had value on the big underdog. So I prefer um, the two way. Do you guys, do you guys ever consider betting on CFL? I guess that's Canadian football league. If so, what differences do you count for in your models based on the different rules? I would treat it as a completely different sport. Just like I basically treat 
NFL and college football is different sports in terms of, I mean, I guess the, the approach is similar, but in terms of the data and the, the actual algorithms and all that, it's put together kind of differently because um, projections are done differently. So I would treat it as a different sport entirely. And I haven't thought about looking into it now. What percentage of your gambling winnings do you get stiffed on or not get paid out for some reason? Hopefully it's low. It's a good question. Um, you know, we've had a, a few, a f- there's one big stiff that st- sticks out over the years. That was like more than a decade ago that I'm never going to talk about, but um, just talked about it. Well, I'm never going <laughs> to, you know, I, I like, I like having both my kneecaps. So uh, I, you know, it's been remarkably small, but I think you kind of bank on like at least like, you know, 2% or so. But the thing is you can get nothing, no stiffs for a long time. And then boom, there's, there's a big one or something. So I think we try to, we only really work with people we know or have, well, that's not true. We, if we, if there's someone we don't have a relationship with, um, we make sure to not have a situation where there could be a large stiff. So having a settle amount that's lower than it would be with someone you really trust. And that way you, you build trust over the course of time. And that way, I, th- I think that that's been a, that's helped us for sure. That one if like that Chris went out of business or something, then that would be pretty bad for me. That one came in from Dunga Jin. Uh, at dunga underscore gin um this one coming in from brad tweets at brad tweets advice for those of us who want to walk the line of winning but not getting limited not looking to become a professional but enjoy having extra cash to throw the mortgage or a car payment is there a bet or unit size that puts you on the radar do you want to go for that one jeff well, I, I actually think about this not from a sports betting standpoint, from a blackjack standpoint, because I, I often wonder if I could go back in time and not be known by casinos, if I would enjoy going to a casino and betting, you know, a couple hundred dollar unit, you know, betting up to a thousand dollars or something like that on a hand and whether I would be able to do that at like the Vegas strip casinos or at like the win without anyone really caring, basically playing like a slightly positive EV game, maybe even like betting 500, like having a very small bet spread. You know what I mean? And like that's kind of what I do when I play blackjack when, you know, I mean, when I'm, it's like drunk blackjack after the Super Bowl where I'm not, yeah, there's times when I'm not counting at all, but there's times when I am and, and just spreading small and mostly just having fun. From a, like a sports betting standpoint, um, I mean, I think it just depends on where you're betting and what, what you're doing. I would assume that like, once you show any pulse in a lot of these places, you're going to, you're going to have trouble. Um, like if you continue winning consistently, you're going to have trouble with um, a lot of, you know, sports books, unless, unless, unless you've had a previous history of losing, you know? So it's like, I, I don't, that, that like little delicate race around, this is actually one of those interesting things, which is like, you know, when you see a hole or an opportunity, do you aggressively go after it or do you like try to make it last forever? And the reality is none of these things last forever. So you kind of got to be aggressive, I think. I think it depends on how many other people know about this hole. 
if it's going to disappear regardless of what you do, then you got to get, then you go balls to the wall and say, you know what, screw it. Well, you got to go back if to it's this... something that only you really, if you think that very few people know about it, and if you didn't do anything about it, no, it wouldn't get discovered, then that's when you can sort of think about the long term. Well, you go back to this whole book that I was telling you about that had the minus 105, minus 105 on the college basketball. I was thinking to myself, like, this is this is great. Like, how do I keep this going? But the reality is there's nothing you you can really do, right? Because over time you're gonna it's like a very obvious thing. It's like they they know that there's value there, so they're gonna take it away from you. Yeah. That's not shooting an angle as much as just showing that you're a sharp account. Yeah um okay uh doing a bet the process golf open question from the bracewell possibly with the calcutta golfers with registered handicaps only i need to get my handicap registered again i feel like i let my membership lapse first of all if any of you guys are ever going to golf with us get a real handicap because it drives me crazy when i ask someone what their handicap is and the answer is anything but a number in other words if they start explaining something to me I'm always like, you are sketchy and I don't really want to bet with you. Like I have a friend named Will and I will call him out who I will look up his, his handicap all the time. And he will tell me it's lower, like it's higher than, than what I find in gin. And he'll always say like, oh yeah, I didn't put my last couple scores in. It's like, well, how do you know exactly what your handicap is if you didn't put your exact score? So like my advice to anyone who golfs and wants to bet on golf is is get a real handicap log your scores and get a handicap that's the beauty of golf is that you have this like you know this this uh equalizer kind of thing this imperfect equalizer yeah yeah um but yes we do want to have a golf event um we're talking about doing it i think we're going to have like one really high end event in vegas potentially where we have a small group that wants to come out and live the live the Vegas life of you know Delilah's and playing win, and then I think we'll do a more accessible weekend where we go play somewhere and just have a fun weekend somewhere and watch some sports. Maybe do it around a sporting event. Like I thought it'd be really fun to do something for Final Four weekend where we go somewhere, we play golf in the morning on Saturday, and then watch the games on Saturday. We play golf on Sunday watch and then do whatever on Sunday and then play golf again on Monday and then watch the game on Monday, like a three day bet the process college basketball and golf event. That'd be fun. If you're interested in that DM us and we'll start collecting a list of people that want to go do this. Um, Okay. From uncle Hefe or J E F F E, which I assume is, is that Hefe? Yeah. Only one F. How is the PGA's decision to hold more non-cut events going to impact golf betting and the overall product? I think it makes it worse. Because there's too many people? No, there's fewer people, but there's no cut. So I know know for DFS, people hate hate no cut when there's DFS um, because suddenly you're it it's 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 a simpler game. I think cut sweating the cuts also kind of fun too, especially when it well when, when it goes your way. I, and I know that there's been criticism because the whole criticism of live was all these no cut events, and now they're doing that as well. But I guess in a way, it's like the same thing as the um, WGC stuff, where it's like rewarding the top players by giving them guaranteed paychecks. But you know, it, 
it's not really going to affect golf betting that much aside from the fact that now you won't have a make miss cut bet available, but I, I don't know. I think it, I don't like it personally. Okay. The next one comes from Tex Danner, which says full story, even though you probably told it many times about meeting Tony for the first time. I've told that recently on the pod, didn't I? Um, I think it was a year or two ago, at least. The whole story. I haven't, I haven't told that in a while. You haven't told it in a while. Okay. The short version. There isn't, I mean, essentially it's just a version. Yeah. A a year, um, not a year ago, uh, many years ago when I was working for ESPN, I was lucky enough to get invited to go do on-air on-set hits at the Super Bowl in Arizona. And we were doing a prop bet segment. And then they kind of said, hey, one of the fun things to do would be what is the probability or what are the chances of Lenny Kravitz kissing Katy Perry on the lips at halftime? Because that was the show. And as I was going through some bullshit analytics around that, uh, Lenny Kravitz walked on the stage and he said, no, 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 that's not how it's going to go. And, you know, that was just obviously just a shtick. And then they went and interviewed Lenny Kravitz. But as that was all happening and they went from a five wide where I was involved to basically just a shot of Lenny, I walked off the set because they told me to walk off the set because I wasn't part of the next segment. And um, I met Tony Kornheiser at the ESPN party because back in those days, ESPN used to have a huge party at the Super Bowl. And I was super excited to go, super excited to meet Tony. And he could not have been like more curmudgeon to me. He basically said, oh my God, I saw you on SportsCenter today. How embarrassing that must have been because you just vaporized. You went from being on set to vaporizing. And then he made some comment about, look, me not being someone that looked like I had much money and he could probably give me $50 and I would do something that he was telling me I should go do. And then he kind of walked away. And his um, producer, PTI, was there and he started talking to me and like learned my backstory and he goes, Oh my God, Tony loves that story. He loves that book. He's going to be so embarrassed when I tell him who you are. And then Tony came back five or 10 minutes later, you know, hand in his head and apologized and, you know, basically said, I'm such a jerk and such a loser and all that, like, you know, it's very self-deprecating. And, you know, since then, obviously Tony and I have become somewhat friends. We played golf together. I'm on a show Every week, he refers to you all the time. He was actually talking to referred- Firefly, right? <clears throat> well, he referred to you again this yeah. week about because they someone was talking about sports betting and he and not referencing me. He said, Did he know Rufus? So he clearly equates professional sports bettings with sports better with Rufus Peabody, which is pretty cool. cool. He also said that he hadn't met Rufus, but he had. I've been Rufus, in studio. I know. I mean, I know, how many people okay. has he met in his life? Come on. A lot. Sir. Yeah. So just, you know, I wasn't that memorable. Lay, lay okay. off, lay off. Okay. That's the whole story. Um, from at Skylander five, how do you share profits without as a pro? Thank you. Best pod ever. Thanks for calling us the best pod ever. Or is he how do I share outs pod ever? Can, outs yeah. with what? Basically it's the, it's the sharing. It's like the, if you're betting through someone's oh, account, what do you do? Outs. What do you do usually? Yeah, you know, it's different. I think everybody's different, but there's, it depends on if it's credit or post up. 
and it, if it's post up, it depends on if you're posting up the money for them or if they're posting up money for you. So I think typically if it's like, if it's credit, our split is anywhere from like, they get 25 to 50% and they're taking on the risk and let, and, but if somebody wants a free roll, then, then it's different and they're getting less. And so I think with, with post-up stuff, I mean, we, we have a whole system for, for our US outs. Um, I mean, a fairly I, standard I say way is just to do like a 20% free roll yeah. is a normal thing, I think. Or, or um, just a 50% split on action, right? A 50% split on action. But what if you have partners that are maybe not sports betting people and they, you know, this is, this is how to sort of scale legally in the legal markets. It's getting people that have accounts that are not betting people. You make money with them. Then oh. you know, the account gets limited and then, you know, find other people. I mean, I think that's, I'm not saying anything novel here. I think this, there's a lot of people out there doing this. I didn't even think. And, and you're sharing, so you're sharing, you're sharing the action and giving them some upside as well. So, you know, they're not, most of it is going to be free roll for them. If you're putting the money, if you're fronting the money. Uh, advice for, this is from at Amber gambling advice for comparing different parameters with similar metrics. I'll put this in football. If someone wants to say crossover XFL to NFL, different parameter. I mean, if we are being real college to pro is not comparable either, nor is yeah. the combine draft a real indicator or is it? Thank you. So the question really here is how do you do player projections from one league to the next? Right? Well, if you're, I mean, it's figuring out how much to wait, like, I think it's definitely different with college and pro um, in the sense that how to wait like a current season versus a prior is going to be pretty different. So it's like, I can have the same sort of process for finding like the same sort of, I don't know, process for finding these answers, but the answers are going to be different for sure. And as well as certain things matter a little bit more than others in, in, college than in, in pro, um, because it's a, the pop, it, you know, I think skill positions matter more in college than they do in pro, uh, aside from quarterback, um, just because there's such a difference between schools. Um, yeah. So I don't know how to, I don't know if that answers it exactly, but there's definitely different parameters for these, for different, for the same sport at different levels. How much, and this is from Donnie Portside, how much are golf dead heats, dead heat rules worth? How much are dead heat rules worth? So for those of you who don't know, um, dead heats basically um, are a way of handling ties in golf and in other sports. So let's say you bet on um, a, a golfer to be in the top five and he is involved in a three-way tie for fourth place. So he is three-way tie, fourth, fifth, sixth. So he, so he gets two-thirds of a top five, and one he gets two-thirds of a win and one-third of a loss. So it's basically how many guys are tied for how many places, right? And so if it's two guys tied for one spot, it's half a win, half a loss. And the same thing can happen for like three balls. You know, if you have a bet um, on a three ball, if, if there's a tie, you know, between two of the guys at the top, you get half a win and half a loss. And so... It's not a push or anything like that. The odds you bet 
do matter. So you get half a win at whatever odds you bet. If you bet at eight to one, half a win at eight to one and half a loss. So how does that, I don't know if he's asking how, how much that affects pricing, because that's going to depend, that's going to vary depending on the market you're betting. So if you're betting like something like top 20 for golf, there's a very big chance, or actually, no, let's even say top five. There's a big chance that, that there's a, a tie there you're going to probably be getting a dead heat payout more often than a regular win. And so it definitely, it has a big impact on, in terms of the price for sure. And so, I mean, I, I can actually pull up and give an example from this week. If you think it's a good idea, Jeff. Sure. So let's find your favorite golfer, John Rom. John Rom. I make him plus two Oh six to be top five this week. Um, that's dead heat rules, but if ties win, that number is plus 175. So in that case, the dead heat part is the difference between plus 175 and plus 206. But it's gonna it's gonna have a bigger impact for the greater the long shot type situation. Um, the worse the golfer, because if you think about a very bad golfer, like or this is an elevated event, so none of them are really that bad. But well, um, if somebody who's if it's an if it's think about top five is sort of a tail event. And so the top, a bad golfer is going to get fifth place more often than they get fourth place a lot more often. Right. Right. And so they're going to end up being tied for the top five more often than they get there all the way. So um, let's find someone really damn low. Um, Okay. Like Ches Reevy, I have him 347 to one to be top five with dead heat rules, but without dead heat rules, that's, or ties win, that's 258 to one. It's a pretty big difference. This is from Rylark B. He says, why is Rufus the nice one? Am I the nice one? I was going to say, how does, why are you the way you are? I'm not sure. That's how I was raised. And then our last question is from BPO nation, which is, Will you guys be doing a BTP Calcutta for the NC tournament? I think the answer to that is yes. We're we're still in discussions. We need to recruit the group to do it. And then he asked about the new pitch clock and other rules, which we've covered. Um, I think one thing we should probably talk a little bit about, Rufus, before we give our picks and say goodbye, is uh, guests for the upcoming offseason. And obviously, we are working through a great list of guests. I think we're going to have a variety of people from both in and out of the sports betting world. We're going to try some things. I mean, I think last last week we had Eli on and, um, you know, there was a little bit of feedback um, on him as a guest. You know, honestly, like we wanted to have someone on that um, knew a little bit about college basketball from a, a different standpoint than we did. Um, I think that, you know, and, and again, like there was some disagreement about whether the content ended up being good. I, I thought it was interesting to talk a little bit about the situational stuff and, and really like whether there was something there or not. Um, it provided a lens for us to discuss. It, it, it did. I and... mean, I, I certainly think the criticism, which we hear is, is all valid in terms of the types of guests we want to have on. Obviously one of the things that we pride ourselves on being is a higher elevated level of discussion about sports betting. You know, some people on Twitter reference that we're not for the casual better and, and, you know, that may be true, but we do have to think a little bit about how we expand our reach and our audience. So we do want to think about things that are more mainstream and how we think about things. I think you and I 
are particularly interested in that as it pertains to things outside of sports betting, not necessarily becoming a more mainstream sports betting podcast itself, but becoming a more mainstream podcast period, meaning there are things that are accessible. Like you've talked about your Buddhism stuff and, and sort I, I want to get mind- Kadam on. Yeah. Want, yeah. And I think that would be really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we definitely want to hear your feedback you know, this is all of you guys, all seven of you, this is your podcast. And ultimately we want to continue to grow and evolve it um, in a way that makes sense to you guys, as you guys evolve and think about the way that you think about both life and and sports betting and whatnot. I mean, sports betting, when we started this sports betting was not legal in the United States, right? Like, like we've, we've kind of like gone through and grown through that. And with that, there's become a ton of content out there. And so I do think we, we want to continue to differentiate ourselves from what's out there. Um, and part of that will be trying things. And so I, I think feedback is, is warranted. Um, I think, you know, again, like no one needs to be attacking Eli or anything like that. I mean, we asked him to come on and, and he did what he did for, I mean, he did as, as good a job as he could in terms of representing his knowledge of college basketball. And for, from our standpoint, there's a lot I more think, players than we do from our standpoint, I think that where we are always going to be tough is we will be skeptical when we believe that someone's process isn't something that ultimately leads to winning. Um, and so when, when we think a little bit about this idea of like situational stuff, and I think again, like when I go back to it, we had this whole discussion about situational stuff. And then it became clear that he wasn't actually using the situational stuff in his modeling or in his picking, right? Like that was just an, it was a narrative to explain something that happened, which is always um, problematic because it makes for more, interesting content or at least content. Um, and again, like you go back to this idea of like creating content in this space. And one of the reasons that it's the content in the space is so shitty is because it is hard to create interesting, compelling content around sports betting. You can't just say, well, that's what my model says and call it a day. Um, that's what I used to do. It turns out people didn't find that interesting. You have a, we have picks. My pick last week was bad. I had Denny McCarthy. He did not make you love Denny. He's been like a repeat pick for you. Yeah. I had him that you're, one time. You're just trying to Martingale him. Eventually he'll win. I'm trying to Martingale him. I mean that in Martingaling a golfer, unless it's John Rahm is probably a bad idea. Um, do you have someone this week that you like? You know, I'll give you the, well, I don't know what odds are available on him now, but the guy, I'll give you the guy at the top. Who? I'm not talking about John Rahm either. Rory McIlroy. I'm going to give you Rory. He's, and, and I'll give you a narrative too. Well, the narrative is that Europeans have done better here at this event. That's it's more narrative than anything, to be honest though, um, at Bay Hill, but Rory would love to win Arnold's tournament too. He would, he, you, he was, you don't think anyone else would love to win it? No, he was close to Arnie. So I think that there's that, that's my narrative for you. That's that has nothing to do with why. I like him. I think. Is there any truth to this European? You just said it and put it in the ether, and now I'm like, oh, I wonder if which Europeans will do well. Um, there's not really significant truth to it long term. Recently, yes, more so, but I think the By argument. The way, if you speak, is that the fact that it's also going to be extremely windy on Friday, and there's a thought that Europeans do better in windier conditions. If if you went from the top list of the golfers do you think you would pick out which ones were european or not just based on their name (laughs) could i pick out which ones are european based on their names or just knowing them no like let's say you knew nothing about golf 
right? Wouldn't you think that Xander Shoffley was European for some reason? Well, his it's either his father or mother's German, right? Right. He's not you wouldn't consider no. him European, right? Well, the the name Shoffley, like that, it's a German name. Shoffley. Would you consider? So. Would you think Patrick Cantlay was European? I would. No, Patrick. Patrick doesn't sound like European. He may be British, but yeah, I mean, it sounds Patrick Cantlay always sounds European to me. Rory McIlroy, I wouldn't think would be European. Matthew Fitzpatrick, would you think he was European? Matt Fitzpatrick, I mean, maybe Irish. How about probably not? Probably not. Uh, Victor Hovland, if you know the Victor with the K, gives it away. Yeah. I'm but just do you understand? Do you, do you understand yeah, I, I do saying, understand the, the way, game it's, here. It's actually pretty. It's actually pretty funny it's, to think about. Like Seamus Power, yeah, European. Okay, yes. Um, let's keep going. Would you think Will Zalatoris? I mean, exactly. That's kind Greek? of what I'm getting. I I think Patrick Cantlay sounds like a European name personally. Um, but like, how much of this is like confirmation bias? Because we know some of these guys. Does like Tommy Keegan Bradley? Okay, t- doesn't Keegan Bradley sound like a European name? See, I can't consider it a European name just because I know. But what about Tommy Fleetwood? Mm. I don't know. Tommy. Yeah. Sam Burns. <laughs> Anyways. Um, a- Adrian Moronk. That's a dead giveaway. Well, that what about, what about, what about Win- Wyndham Clark? Wyndham Clark. Now, w- w- Wyndham, Wyndham sounds like a. it was a trendy name that somebody read about in the 19... 19- late eighties or early nineties or something. Wyndham doesn't sound like a European name at all. It's like a, someone named, um, I don't know, a Madison or a, uh, what's, what's a bow bow is not European at all. You know, what's my, really my, my, uh, uh triggered or what do we call it? What, tilted yeah. Tilted moment. moment. My tilted moment right now is I should be at half moon Bay playing golf right now. And I'm not, why not go play? Uh, cause I'm leaving for this Sloan thing tomorrow and there's much things I need to do and wanted to get this podcast done and spend a little time with my sons instead of being, go- being golfing. Um, but it would be nice to be golfing cause I haven't golfed in two weeks and I really worked on some new stuff on my swing today. Nice. Um, okay. I'm going to pick Sun JM as my guy. This week. Wait, Adam Svensson. That sounds European, but isn't. You would always say that's European. He's Canadian. Uh, okay, you're going with Sanjay. I'm going to go with Sanjay M at plus so, 30 to one, roughly. Let's see. We're, we're, yeah. Okay. His lines, his, he's down from where I, where he was earlier. I make so. him 37 to one. So, okay. Well, I'm being interrupted by my son, so we'll talk to you guys all again next week. Numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down, it seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are but the engines running off a leaded.